Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast on Friday, 17th of May 2013. My name is Nikolai Humphreys. Today we launch a major new series about the health of Pakistan and I'm delighted to be joined by a key figure behind the series and someone who is very familiar to the Lancet, Professor Zulfika Bhutta from the Aga Khan University in Karachi, Pakistan. Welcome to the podcast. Well, delighted to be with you, sir. I'm going to move straight on to question one. Professor Bhutta, before we discuss the series in more detail, can you just outline the political situation in Pakistan today and why this represents an opportunity for the country to reform and improve its health system? Well, the political situation, particularly this week in Pakistan, is uh, perhaps for lack of a better term, is fraught to say the least. The country is on the verge of holding its uh, first elections following the completion of a term by a political government. And therefore, this is a milestone of sorts because uh, there is a tremendous desire for change. So those of you who watch the Pakistan media and largely get a daily dose of bad news would also uh, find that there are promising flickers of change. So one of those is tremendous interest amongst the youth who, notwithstanding the violence, the threats, the uh, political positionings of the extreme wings, are trying their level best to put forward their vote for candidates who they believe are transparent, are uh, those who will bring about change, both in terms of the social investments that governments make. So... I see a lot of silver linings amidst all the doom and gloom and the violence that's going on. Given the, the huge challenges that Pakistan has faced with insurgency, with conflict on its borders and within its borders, hopefully these elections will bring about a stable government with its eye on reducing some of the inequalities and reducing some of the hugely, hugely challenging poverty and and disempowerment in the country. Yeah, and that leads me into my next question, which is about the first paper in this series, and that highlights how Pakistan is falling behind other similar countries in regards to health care. Can you outline some of the reasons for this? Thank you. Well, the first paper of our series on Pakistan focuses especially on the broad health system, uh, its performance, and some of the recent challenges that have uh, that the health system has experienced in the wake of a constitutional amendment called, in simplest terms, the 18th Constitutional Amendment, which uh, by law devolved health to the provinces, uh, but also did so in a manner that there isn't a federal health ministry anymore, and certainly now have had the experience of a situation in which provinces have been asked to put forward their health programs and planning without a federal structure for coordination and oversight. So, in summary, uh, the papers highlight the fact that with a population that we have in Pakistan close to around 185 million presently and targeted to go close to 300 million if it continues in the same manner by 2050, that for that population there is tremendous provincial geographic diversity. So we have... At the one hand, 65% of the people living in Punjab, which is a relatively uh, wealthy province, and a lot of people living in rural, impoverished provinces, 
such as Baluchistan, such as FATA, which have not only seen insurgency in conflict, but have had very little in terms of human development. Paper also highlight in a summarized manner what has really been the status of investments in health, both in terms of policy and planning, over the last 65 years since Pakistan's been in existence. It also points out that although health has received some attention in terms of health policies in uh, the um, early 70s, in the 90s, in the recent 2001 federal program, implementation has been a big issue. And one of the reasons for that was that there wasn't empowerment of the provinces for implementation of much of the health policies that were developed federally. The paper explains the genesis as well as the content of the 18th Constitutional Amendment, which principally alters things fundamentally, and with the exception of some um, uh, money transfers to the provinces from the Council of Common Interest, gives the onus of responsibility and financing for health to the provinces. We also explain in that paper how Pakistan's health system is complex. So although I have in my few statements also talked about the government as a major driver of health, but if you look at the reality in the mixed health systems of Pakistan, as Dr. Nishtar points out, uh, Pakistan has quite a significant private sector, which runs a lot of the health care and out-of-pocket expenditures of the population. So by some estimates, it's around 70% or thereabouts of, of the health spending of families. We also provide, which I think are unique document, information on health financing and where is that uh, coming from and makes the stark point consistent with, as I just told you, that about 78% of the population is currently uncovered in terms of financial coverage for health. So the paper is, is rather data dense, but it makes several points in terms of the comparative position of Pakistan in health, underscoring the fact that in recent decades, Pakistan's progress, both in terms of uh, measurable benchmarks, Millennium Development Goals, has fallen behind many of the regional countries. It also talks about what needs to be done uh, in terms of strengthening provincial planning and oversight of health in the wake of the 18th Amendment. And to close, it talks about some of the recent really remarkable movements which uh, augur well for health and health oversight, such as, for example, judicial activism, media, extensive health infrastructure, though of poor quality, but which can be strengthened, the strong communication and mHealth backbone in the country. The fact that despite all these issues, we have a very strong data system and uh, a validation system uh, the recent initiatives to document poverty. So if you wanted to proceed in that direction, we could build on the, on the shoulders of the income support program. And a very deep desire for change in society, which augurs well for the future. Thank you, Professor Buta, for that overview. You alluded to earlier the silver linings, and I'm afraid this next question brings with it some, some doom and gloom, because I'm looking here at the uh, maternal and child health stats where um, Pakistan is again falling behind its MDG targets. Why is this, and what strategies could be implemented to boost health care for maternal and child health? Well, I hope that those who will read this paper on reproductive maternal and newborn and child health in Pakistan would go beyond the doom and gloom. Although the paper does highlight how we have fallen behind in terms of uh, statistics, figures, trends, 
the mere fact that we have that data is a very strong point in terms of how we can bring about change. So if you look at the granularity of the information in this paper that we provide, both in terms of mortality trends, what is known about the causes of maternal deaths, of child deaths, and importantly of something that people don't even know of in other regions, stillbirths, it would be very evident that Pakistan has tracked some of these things even though action on this may not have been uh, rapid or visible. The paper also highlights not just the trends, but the inequities around coverage of interventions. So if you uh, look at some of the figures in this paper which speak volumes, uh, the poverty index between districts is hugely diverse. It bears a very close correlation with some of the mortality stats. Poorest districts are the ones which have the highest rates of mortality and also the lowest coverage of some of the basic services, such as skilled care provision at birth. You, you also have huge differences. In some instances, seven-fold differences in the coverage of some key interventions to save maternal lives. If you look at nutrition indicators, uh, we have the data. We have some of the most granular data on micronutrients in the country for decades, and uh, yet they haven't found their way into policy. Now, why is that? The reason, very simply speaking, is there hasn't been enough investment in the public sector, in health in general, and maternal and child health in particular. How much health can you get for 0.8% or 0.5% of the GDP, depending on which figures you see? When you spend less than 1% of your GDP on health, when the average public sector spending on health per capita is around $13, $14, there is only that much health that can be bought for it. I would say that Pakistan has still done reasonably well in terms of strengthening some aspects, such as introduction of new vaccines for child survival, creation of a phenomenal, innovative new cadre of workers for addressing some of the primary preventive care, the lady health workers, over 100,000 such workers in rural populations. Where the system has failed, in our opinion, as highlighted in the paper, is in the implementation of many of the, of the policies and programs that uh, exist, and also in focusing on appropriate data-led action in the districts, both in the wake of the local government ordinance of a few years ago and now the post-devolution scenario. So to cut a long story short on the statistics, the, the paper does provide a sobering set of data on where the failings are and, and where the action needs to take place. But then, if you permit, I would like to talk about some of the positives in this paper, or at least the promising side of what can be done. Please go ahead. So, so you know, the paper is divided into two sections, as uh, you might see. One is on challenges, which I've just summarized, and then the other is on opportunities. So on the opportunities, what we've done, I and a group of my colleagues have looked at quite in-depth coverage data on some of the evidence-based interventions that I've just spoken about. And many of these interventions are not pie in the sky. I mean, there are things that already exist within our programs but have not been optimally implemented. And in an exercise, we have attempted to see if these were implemented in a, in a pragmatic, graded manner to increase coverage to 60% or beyond over the next five years, what difference might that make to where mortality and morbidity is clustered presently? And what is salutary is that the data very clearly suggest that taking all the barriers and all the challenges that we have for maternal and child health, we could reduce 58% of these deaths as we speak. 
and reduce them particularly amongst the poorest of the poor. So we make the clear case that just seven packages of care, including periconceptual care for women who are intending a pregnancy, antenatal care, childbirth care, postnatal care, integrated managed childhood illness, nutrition, and immunizations. No, not, no rocket science here. That if you were able to implement these, we are looking at potentially saving out of the current uh, huge number of maternal and child deaths, which uh, by some estimates for the year 2012 are around 370,000, we could save close to 16,000 maternal deaths, 170,000 newborn deaths, and 180,000 child deaths. If I was a politician, I would take this tomorrow, because in terms of something that can be given to civic society and the population at large, this is a hugely important and necessary investment. Yeah, it does sound very pragmatic, and uh, yes, I completely agree with you. One aspect I'd like to talk to you about is the sort of the burden of non-communicable diseases that is taking a toll on Pakistan's health. How would you summarize the current NCD problem in the country and what public health policies are needed to combat this growing problem? I guess also, you know, we need to talk about if there should be a target for NCD reduction by a specific date. Well, thank you. This, this next paper led by Professor Tazeen Jaffer is quite an ambitious paper, and it's a, it's a unique paper because there hasn't been a focus uh, with data on non-communicable diseases in Pakistan, although globally there is clear recognition that this is the emerging problem from a global burden of disease context. So again, to attempt to summarize a large amount of information in this paper, uh, what this paper makes the case for is that the burden of non-communicable diseases and injuries in Pakistan is extremely high and unrecognized by all current projections increase, if anything. To what extent the, the global burden of disease data extrapolated for Pakistan talk about close to around 3.9 million premature deaths by 2025 from cardiovascular diseases, cancer, respiratory diseases, and and among people between 30 to 69 years of age. So we're not even talking about things that happen to people in the very twilight of their life. And, and this has a huge, huge burden in terms of uh, development costs and also health costs. What are these various categories? This paper points out to a vastly unrecognized uh, proportion of uh, injuries, both road traffic injuries and unintentional injuries, which are non-road traffic accidents, which points out to living conditions environment. And, and to some of the audience, uh, this would not be too surprising, given what's happened in our neighborhood in recent years, in terms of in recent days, in terms of worker safety. It also points out to a vastly increasing um, uh, issue with cardiovascular diseases and cancers. So, the paper just gives a sense of the distribution of this burden from data that uh, have been culled and analyzed from national statistics. But then it also points out to the risk factors. The risk factors that I want to very briefly highlight because these are all amenable to preventive strategies. So the risk factors include tobacco use. And if you were to glance an eye at figure two in this paper, you will find that tobacco use is projected to go up to a huge number, a proportion of deaths, both from cardiovascular cancers and chronic respiratory diseases. And it also talks about lifestyle issues the increase in overweight, physical inactivity, 
suboptimal blood glucose and poor intake of things like fruits and vegetables in an agrarian economy is a bit surprising. So it points out to things that we can fix without necessarily huge investments in brick and mortar and infrastructure because as a signatory to the framework for tobacco control, Pakistan ought to be able to do something about it immediately. Uh, the, the implementation of some of the traffic regulatory laws, wearing of helmets, and, uh, and similar initiatives are all entirely possible. The paper then talks about a rather uh, ambitious but pragmatic set of steps that can be undertaken over the next few years in terms of uh, addressing non-communicable diseases. Now, I said ambitious and pragmatic, which are probably, uh, uh, you know, contradictory terms. Ambitious because the targets of doing so would require a fairly quick and focused attention at a policy level. Pragmatic because they are already there. Many of the barriers in terms of implementation or developing these interventions, legislative uh, agreements between provinces, they're already there. So if they were to be implemented, the currently estimated loss in national productivity is, is huge and is estimated to be close to around $3.5 billion, which for a poor country like Pakistan is huge over the next few years. The paper projects a 20% reduction in non-communicable diseases by 2025, suggests a range of policy and health interventions that can make this happen. So I'd close on this paper by saying important and timely paper highlights how in a health policy framework we need to address some of the priority issues, not just for women and children and those at the younger age groups, but also the increasing issue diseases of adults and elderly in, in a population where life expectancy is going up. Thank you, Professor Buta. And my final question is about uh, investing in health. Now, the last series paper calls for Pakistan to use the current political situation to readdress its health priorities within a political framework. You kind of alluded to this in some of your previous answers. Could you re-emphasize how politics in Pakistan can improve health and what would you say would be the top priorities for the country moving forward? Well, thank you. To us, this last paper in the series, or a call to action, is potentially the most important paper in the series. And Dr. Sunny Anishta and I have spent a lot of time crafting this in a manner that we believe will have nonpartisan support. This series, as you, as you know, has come out of an independent academic and policy environment in Pakistan, and therefore does not take any political positions, both in terms of concepts, policies, and approaches going forward. What we put forward in this paper is a call for a unified vision and action based on the principles of universal and equitable healthcare access. Now, universal healthcare is something that everyone's talking about. We underscore in this paper is that we want to focus on universal healthcare with equity as a goal. Because you could have universal health care and actually in the short term inequities worsen. So what we talk about is the six objectives for action that we recommend in the context of equitable access for care. For so the first of these is making health a much higher priority for action. And I would say health and nutrition as a much higher priority for action. Sadly, this has only received lip service by various political parties. And therefore the timing of this series right around the time of a political change in the country is extremely important. We hope that political parties that will form the next government 
will take note of some of the key recommendations in this analysis. So therefore, political ownership and the initiatives to prevent policy vacillations, to prevent the changes in key programs, are absolutely critical. We then also make a recommendation, the second one, of not only greater focus on this, but greater investments in health, so more money for health. And we talk about how the public sector spending needs to go up from its currently abysmal 0.9% of our GDP. And this needs to go up to at least 5%. And this would be still less than some, some in proportional figures from our neighbors. And many political parties, as we point out in this paper, have actually pointed out to figures which are not too far away, but I, we don't think they are too ambitious. So we have asked for at least 5% uh, investment. But do you think that's at all realistic, that they would increase it from 0.9 to 5? We believe that unless we focus on getting real resources out there, given what I just pointed out to you a short while ago on the actual spending on health, that is absolutely realistic. We also point out where that money might come from. If you look at the amount of losses that we have currently through inefficiencies, through corruption, through the simple uh, facts that we have not been able to prevent leakages in the energy supply sector, uh, we believe that those monies can be found. How many people pay taxes in Pakistan? Just bringing people into the tax net, uh, the, the fat cats who are not paying uh, their due duties to the state, would create the resources that would allow us to increase investments for health, nutrition, and the social sector. So we, we firmly believe, as we believe that the political parties who have put forward the figures also do, that this is doable. And, and that's why it's our second and strong recommendation. The third recommendation is a combination of universal, targeted, focused interventions so that you could achieve the equitable universal health care coverage in the time frame that we have talked about. We have said how this could be done both within the individual papers that I've previously talked about and how this could be done in a manner where this is data-driven. So you have a real-time opportunity and uh, focus on information for action. We have next made a very specific case for focusing not just on actions within health, but on the social determinants of health. So nutrition, for example, education, empowerment of women, opportunities within intersectoral action for addressing some of these key determinants, we've made a very strong case for ensuring that that happens, that you create the environment where health exists within the context of broad investments in addressing some of these inequities and social barriers to health. We have made a very strong case in this call for action for ensuring that health workers have security. In, in recent months and years, the targeting of healthcare workers, particularly the poor, healthcare workers, the, the community workers, and physicians in many cities of the, of the country, their kidnappings, are absolutely you know, disastrous for provision of rural healthcare. Then we talk about something which I believe is critically important and has taken some thought in the series authors because this talks about how can we, without taking away the spirit of the 18th Amendment, institute an oversight and coordination mechanism where the federal government and the federation plays a role. So if we have suggested a framework for federal health sector, 
following the 18th constitutional amendment, which is true to the letter and spirit of what the constitutional amendment talks about. It talks about giving some functions to the federation of oversight, of coordination, of health information, of research, of ensuring that there is adequate policy level integration between provinces so that they're not all going their different ways. And this, we believe, is critical. So the creation of a health division for this oversight at a federal level, we believe is critical, and we hope that it might happen irrespective of whatever political government comes into power in the provinces and in the federation. Finally, we make a point for accountability. And this is not just fiscal accountability. This is an accountability of the decision makers and the managers in health to their constituents. So not just more money for health, more health for the money, making sure that people implement what's in the policy documents and that they're accountable for that in terms of performance. Currently, this is a weak area. And we believe that the recommendations that have been put forward in a global context by the Commission for Information and Accountability provides at least a framework where Pakistan can put forward an action plan to ensure that its provinces and federation remain accountable to its population and also to the global community. So to summarize, this paper highlights and chalks a pathway whereby Pakistan could achieve some of the objectives set out in this series at large. And it also talks about pragmatic actions that can be built and take place on what exists within the administrative and structural frameworks for health. Professor Zovika Buta, thank you for speaking with The Lancet. Thank you.